Welcome to On Mission, the teaching ministry of the Mission Church in Urbandale, Iowa. We exist to love God by loving others, leading them to become fully functioning followers of Jesus Christ. Take your Bibles and turn with me today to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2 begins by setting the events that chapter 2 records in real time. Uh, One of the things that I want to say is that the Bible is not a once upon a time book. You hear me? It's not a once upon a time. It's an end time book. I mean, it's real. The events that it records are real. They're not fairy tales. And one of the ways that we know that is just by the sheer amount of verifiable history that is contained therein. We can go in so many times and see where these events took place and the secular historians say, yes, these things were there. They occurred. And so we know they happened in real time. And so as we open up Daniel chapter 2, we find that the events that occur in chapter 2 took place during the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar who at that point was king over Babylon. I want to give you a little bit of a timeline just to kind of set a context as it relates to history and, uh, and where this fits and all of that. And there is a point that I want to make in just a moment, so just kind of go with me. As far as the timeline, May through June of 605 B.C., Nabopolassar was in the waning days of his rule over Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, his son, was the general at that time over his armies. And it was at that time that Nebuchadnezzar waged war against the Egyptians, and he overtook them. From June to August of 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar led Babylon's army into Israel, where he took Jerusalem and began the deportation of select Israelites to Babylon, and one of those was Daniel. In September of 605 BC, Nabopolassar died, and Nebuchadnezzar was then crowned king. And I want to take just a moment here to explain to you how how Babylon actually counted the number of years that any particular person reigned on the throne, because it's important. You see, uh, when we read the text, and if we dig just a little bit, we kind of discover on the surface that the reign of Nebuchadnezzar doesn't quite seem to match up with what it says about Daniel being there. And if we're not careful, we can think, well, well, there's an error in the Scripture. But in fact, there is not an error in the Scripture. If we go back into history, we find an explanation for what the deal is. So let me give that to you real quick. Basically, the Babylonians counted a king's first year of rule when he actually completed a full year of rule, a partial year whether it was at the beginning of his rule or at the end of his rule, was not part of the way they counted the time that he ruled. Now, Daniel's captivity and his deportation took place during Nebuchadnezzar's partial year of reign. So it wasn't counted as him being the king, even though he was. Uh, Therefore, uh, the reported timeline between Nebuchadnezzar's reign And Daniel's time in captivity, as I said, may at times look like they're about a year apart when in fact they really aren't. So let's continue on. 604 B.C. was the first full year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, and it was the second year of Daniel's re-education. 
603 B.C. was the second full year, so that brings us to chapter 2 of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, and it was the third year of Daniel's re-education. Now remember that Daniel and his friends went through a three-year process of indoctrination into Babylonian culture and education. Now the thing that I want to make known to you today, and one of the points that this timeline um, uh, points to, is simply this that uh, the events that we find in Daniel chapter 2 took place just after Daniel had completed his three-year course of study. He had just, as they say, graduated from the University of Babylon. All right? And this would put him at about the age of 18 to 20. And it would mark him as an apprentice, an apprentice wise man advisor. In other words, when we read Daniel chapter 2, Daniel was at the very bottom of the corporate ladder. He was probably in the mailroom, so to speak, right? He had not even hit the first rung. And so that just kind of gives us a little understanding about where he is and what's going on in the surroundings that he lived in. So let's begin to discover as we read through, and I'm not going to read the whole chapter Right out the gate, we're going to just kind of take it piecemeal, and hopefully that will be helpful. We want to see what Daniel the Apprentice faced just after his graduation from this re-education program. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the the enchanters... The sorcerers and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know or to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans, meaning the wise men, the advisor, said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation." Now, as we look through the Bible, we find that Yahweh is known for using dreams and visions to give revelations to humanity as well as to advance his plans among men. For example, in Genesis chapter 41, we find a record where Yahweh gave Pharaoh of Egypt a dream, a dream that troubled him and shook him to his very core. He did not understand the dream, and so he was looking for someone who could interpret it for him. And God used Joseph, uh, one of Jacob's sons, who happened to be at that time a captive in Egypt, to bring the interpretation to Pharaoh. In short, the interpretation was this, that there is going to be a 14-year period coming. There will be seven years of abundant harvests, And then there will be seven years of absolute famine, catastrophic famine. And God gave Joseph the wisdom to advise the Pharaoh to appoint a man to oversee the ingathering of the abundant harvests, storing at least one-fifth of each year's harvest so that when the time came, that stored grain would sustain Egypt through the seven years of famine to follow. Well, Pharaoh took his advice and appointed him. He went from the prison house to the capital house. He became the second in charge of Egypt 
by God's work in this particular way. It's a fascinating story. I would encourage you to read it if you haven't. Matthew chapter 1 records how Joseph, a different Joseph, uh, Mary's fiance, discovered that she was pregnant prior to their marriage. And this caused him to contemplate divorcing her. Now, in our day, we wouldn't do it that way. We'd just say, I want my ring back. We're done. Hit the bricks. But back then, you actually went through a formal process of, of divorcing, even though you were just engaged. So he was contemplating that. And before he could act on that, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream to reveal to him that she was with child by an act of the Holy Spirit. She had not been unfaithful to him. And that she was the one selected by God to give birth to the long-awaited Messiah. In Matthew chapter 2, we find not only the recording of the birth of Jesus, but also of the what we call wise men or magi who came from the east to worship him. It also records how they met with, uh, with, uh, with Herod. And uh, he uh, had said to them that he wanted to know where the Christ child was because like them, he wanted to go and worship the Christ child. Of course, we know that he wanted to kill the Christ child. And so after the Magi found Jesus, Mary and Joseph, and they had uh, had their time with them and offered their gifts of worship, uh, we discover uh, that they were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. Don't go back. Don't tell him what you said you would do. Just get on out of town and go back home. And they received that through a dream. And then finally, Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 16, records how God gave the apostle Peter a vision, a vision of a sheet that was descending from heaven. The sheet was filled with all kinds of animals that were on the unclean list. We talked about that a little bit last week. And how God said to Peter, arise, kill, and eat. <laughs> and Peter kind of had a reaction to that. And he said, uh, I can't do that, Lord. Uh, what, what you've, what's in front of me here is unclean. And uh, God said to him, what I have made clean, don't you call unclean. And that changed a whole host of things as it relates to where things were going uh, in the future. So we just see the example there that Yahweh is a God who has used and still does, I'm sure, in some form or fashion, uses dreams and visions to bring some revelation and or to guide people in a certain way. Well, in Daniel, we find Nebuchadnezzar has received a dream from God, and the dream that he received was of the utmost importance. It foretold of major kingdoms that were yet to come. It also foretold of a final kingdom that would crush all the other kingdoms and then would become eternal. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar didn't understand that. He didn't understand anything about the dream. He was just very troubled about what he saw in his dream. And so, for whatever reason, whether Nebuchadnezzar was not quite able to remember the dream enough to articulate it, or whether he just didn't trust his magicians and sorcerers to give a correct interpretation, by, after he had told them about the dream, he called them all together. And he demanded that they tell him what the dream was without any help from him. Tell me what it was and then give me the interpretation of it. And it's at this point that what had been a nightmare for Nebuchadnezzar was about to become a nightmare for those he's demanding this unreasonable 
uh, action from. Looking at verse 4 again and continuing. Then the Chaldeans, that is the wise men and advisors, said to the king, O king, live forever. That's what you say when you're under the thumb of a totalitarian ruler who can do whatever he wants at, the, at his most whatever whim. He says, uh, they say, tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. How would you like to have that as pressure over you? He wasn't kidding. They did that kind of stuff back then. They would tie people to four horses and smack them on the rump, and they would literally pull a man or a woman apart. That is gruesome. And when he said, I'm going to make your house a place of ruin, that's not the literal translation. The literal translation is, I'm going to make your house a dung heap. Enough said, right? Imagine your house becoming a dung heap. But, he said on the positive, that was the negative, but if you show me the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. Now, the Babylonians, as well as other ancient peoples at the time, were enamored with dreams. They saw dreams as um, revelation from the gods. Revelations that were intended to direct their path, either toward success or toward failure. In my study, I discovered that the Babylonians had created a manual on how to interpret dreams. And it was really quite in-depth. On the screen, there you have it. On the screen is what we would call a page out of the Babylonian dream manual. Of course, it's a big block of whatever, so it's not a page, but it, we would call it that. And according to those who can interpret that stuff on that, um, on that, I can't forget it. On that thing, on lines 9 through 27, there is instruction on there about how to interpret someone's dream if in the dream there was a person or some other kind of living character that was the focus of the dream. And so I'm going to read to you what is on there, at least in part. So the instruction there was this. If the character or the person gazes toward the right, his adversary will die. That means the dream, person having the dream, his adversary will die. If he gazes toward the left, then his adversary will overcome him. If he look backward, he will not attain his desire. If his eye if his right eye flow, and I don't know what that means, but if his right eye flow, sickness will appear. If his left eye flow, his heart will be glad. Okay? So these are just instructions. As, he, as people are getting the details, you're thinking through these things, you're turning in all the pages to find out what's going on, and you interpret from that. So again, as the dream is made known, based on the various details, uh, that's what they would do. They would turn to the dream manual to the tablets, to conjure up an interpretation. And uh, for, uh, for um, Nebuchadnezzar, this was an important dream. And for him, there was just absolutely no room for charlatan shenanigans. In his mind, he thought if they can tell him the dream, then he would know that they had the power 
to give him an accurate interpretation. However, the wise men, the advisors, the Chaldeans, they knew they couldn't do it. They knew this. We can give you an interpretation if you'll tell us the dream, but we can't tell you the dream. And that's what they say in verse 7. They reiterate again a second time. Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. Now, as we continue on, verses 8 and 9, we find exactly what the king thought of his seasoned um, soothsayers, so to speak. The king said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall uh, know that you can show me its interpretation. So I want you just to try to imagine. You're one of these people, and you've got your dream manual. And if he'll just tell you what it is, you can go back and confer and read up on it, and you can come back, whether it's accurate or not, is irrelevant, but you can come back with a certain interpretation, and the king's going to be happy with you, and all will go well. But here you are. He's not going to tell you his dream. Maybe he can't tell you his dream. Maybe he's just choosing not to tell you his dream. But he's not going to do it. He is demanding that you tell him his dream and you know there's nothing you can do there is no way to snow him on this because as soon as you start some ridiculous explanation of a dream he's going to know well that's not what i thought i saw and now we're going to have problems so this is how they responded and this is telling they say in verse 10 these are the um the wise men and such there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand for no great and powerful king has asked such of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult. Actually, it's impossible. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. So at this point, let's give the wise men a little credit because um, they are partially right. Um, there was no man who could give the king what he was looking for. If the king was going to get what he was looking for, then there would have to be a divine intervention for the king's demand to be met. Now, that's reasonable, don't you think? Y'all awake? Okay. I know I may be boring you with just reading the text, but the text is where it's all at. So here's the thing, right? That's reasonable to you and me. And we would say, okay, I get it, I understand. Well, let's see what we can do to work this thing out. But when you're a totalitarian despot, that every word you speak gets carried out immediately, you're not accustomed to being reasonable, are you? No. And so we find he's not reasonable. He heard a reasonable explanation, a reasonable request, but here's how he responds. He becomes angry. He becomes very furious. And he commands that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. That means take them out and kill them. So the decree went out. And the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Now that, my friends, 
is the context of this slice of Daniel's life. He is between the age of 18 and 20. He just graduated with honors, yes, but he is still fresh from Babylon's re-education program for deportees. And here he stands. He's about to be put to death because the more seasoned, wise men advisors did not have the ability to recount the king's dream. So, that leads me to a question. What does a godly man or woman do when the pagans are knocking at the door to drag you off to your death? That's where Daniel was. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion. Those are important words. He did this to Ariok, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Ariok, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Ariok made the matter known to Daniel. That right there tells us that Daniel was not there when all of this was going on previously. Remember, they're not, they're not up the chain, right? They're just barely out of school. They're just getting the mail to wherever it goes. So they didn't know. So this Arioch tells them what's going on. So how did Daniel respond to this most threatening situation? The question is, how would you respond? We've already seen that he responded with prudence and with discretion, so let's look at those. We find, first of all, that Daniel replied with prudence. What does that mean? It means wisdom. It means caution. It means sound judgment. He might have been inexperienced, but God gave him some, some real ability here. What we find is that he did not overreact. He did not jump to conclusions. He did not declare the injustice of it all. Instead, we find that Daniel tempered himself until he could learn more. Now, I want to stop here for just a moment to say that we're living in a time when I'm seeing more and more people who jump to conclusions. They don't even hear half the matter, and they're already yapping about it. And they're making accusations, and they're pointing their fingers, and they're breathing fire. Now, pagans can act that way. But that's not the behavior of a Christ follower. Do you hear me? I don't think they heard me. I'm serious. Because it happens in the body of Christ. There's no place for that. Proverbs would tell us that only a fool begins to respond to something they haven't even heard about. Heard completely through. We find Daniel, he was caution. He used caution. He used sound judgment. He, he waited to hear it all out. We also find that Daniel replied with discretion, meaning that he, was, he behaved or he spoke in such a way so as to avoid causing unnecessary offense. So when Daniel did speak, uh, he was careful with his words. He didn't allow his emotions to drive his speech. Again, I see that all the time. People's emotions driving what they say. 
In verse 16, we find that Daniel acted with boldness. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Um, although verse 16 does not say it, the text as a whole reveals that Daniel had great confidence in Yahweh. Now, he had already witnessed Yahweh's empowerment and deliverance with the issue of the king's food. And with that fresh memory of what God was doing in his life, he was emboldened then to petition the king to give him time so that he could then petition God to find an answer. Furthermore, I believe that when Nebuchadnezzar saw Daniel, since he had not been there at the original meeting, and no doubt he remembered the impression that Daniel and his friends had made on him when he reviewed their skills. Remember the king had testified that he found Daniel and his friends ten times better than all the other graduates of the re-education program. We find that Nebuchadnezzar granted Daniel's request. He said, okay, I'll give you some time. And we find then that Daniel wasted no time inviting his friends to join him in the most important activity that any Christian can engage in. Daniel gathered his friends and prayed. Verse 17, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven, in other words, let's get on our knees, friends, and let's pray. Let's petition God concerning this mystery, this mystery of the king's dream, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Church, would you look up here for just a moment? I want to ask you, how confident are you regarding prayer when the unknown faces you? How confident are you in prayer? Is it the first thing you do? When something mysterious, something you don't understand, something that is difficult, something that troubles you, do you get away alone or with your husband or your wife or a friend and ask God, to open your understanding? You know, life presents many unknowns, doesn't it? Issues that research and networking and acquired skills and what is referred to as American ingenuity simply cannot provide the answers we need. To say it another way, life brings many mysteries our way and where do we turn to find the answers? Well, Daniel was facing a mystery that no one, one on earth could possibly answer. He could have gone to every friend and every person he could think of and asked, can you help me with this? And none of them would have been able to help. Only Yahweh could help. Even the king didn't understand it. Because God had hidden a prophetic mystery in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And the only means by which the mystery could be solved was through direct petition to the God of heaven. And so in verse 19, we find that as Daniel and his friends asked God to
to reveal the mystery, he did. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed or thanked or worshipped or praised the God of heaven. We find that Daniel responded to God's response with worship. Daniel's faith in God, his willingness to turn to God as the first place to find the answers that he needed was something that pleased the Lord. And so the Lord gave him the requests that he had offered. And this then prompted Daniel to erupt in a chorus of worship. I want us to look at verses 20 through 23 and see the worship that Daniel offered to the Lord. I want you to take a note of the divine realities that fill his praise. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons, meaning he's in charge of what goes on. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, Daniel said, I give praise, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked you for, or asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Daniel knew something that his pagan counterparts did not know. He knew that there was a God in heaven, a living God in heaven, not a statue, not something conjured up in the minds and the hearts of men and women, but a real eternal God. And so he went to that God and he prayed and he asked for this knowledge and he was given it. So how did things turn out? Beginning with verse 24, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He said to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, remember they changed his name, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And I want you to hear how Daniel responds. Daniel answered the king, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or astrologer can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to the king, to King Nebuchadnezzar, what will be in the latter days. Now, we're not going to look at the dream today. We're going to do that next week. We're going to look at the dream. We're going to look at the interpretation. We're going to draw some, some points out of that. But I just want to say this, that the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had plays very heavy in the study that we're going to start in September 
in the book of Revelation. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in your bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. God gave Nebuchadnezzar a prophetic dream. A dream he could not understand. A dream that frustrated him so much that it, it threatened the lives of his wise men and advisors. It, it threatened to put Daniel's life in jeopardy. And yet we see Daniel responding in a godly way. Daniel used wisdom and tact in response to the threat. He boldly asked the king for time to ask his God for an answer. When he got the request, he marshaled his friends to join him in asking God for deliverance through an answer to the dream. And when he received it, he stood in the king's presence, confident in what God provided, and he then spoke the revelation that he had been given. Now, friends, that right there is how God's people are to live for him in the midst of a pagan world. Exactly what you see right there. The way Daniel handled this is the way we should be handling the unreasonable demands that come to us from the world in which we live. And I've created or discovered four truth points that I want to share with you. And I want to give those to you before we close. And hopefully these will be helpful. These are taken out of the information that we have seen here this morning. Truth point number one. Scripture reveals, and Daniel is one example, that youth and inexperience are no barrier to God. In fact, he specializes in using people that the world discounts for their lack of skill, education, and experience. He uses them to do great things for his glory. Now, teens, if there's any teens in the room, college student, young adult, I want to say to you that God will use you to do great things for him if you are willing to let him fill you with his word and his spirit. Faithfulness, availability, and teachability are traits that he looks for in people that he empowers for his service. And so just because you're young, just because you're inexperienced, means nothing. God is in the business of taking young people who are inexperienced and doing awesome things with them to glorify himself and to be of help to other people. Truth point number two. Although God has and still uses dreams and visions to reveal himself, his primary method of revelation is his spirit working in concert with his word. That's his primary way. So I say this to you. Listen carefully. Never accept someone's experience, vision, or dream as authoritative communication from God. If somebody comes to you and says, well, I had a vision, well, I had an experience, well, I had a dream, and this means this, that, and the other, 
Never take that at its face value. You may listen to it. You may go, hmm, that's interesting, right? But the first thing you need to do after that is say, well, where do we find that in the Word? Because that is not the authoritative way God works. So always judge experiences, visions, and dreams against the inerrant, infallible Word of God because God's Word is His authoritative communication to mankind. If you want to know where God's mind is on any issue, this is where you're going to find it. You're not going to find it in an experience. You're not going to find it in a dream or a vision unless that dream and vision completely agrees with God's word. So please keep that in mind. Truth point number three. Living for God in this pagan world guarantees that impossible demands will come your way. Remember that a soft answer turns away wrath. Proverbs 15.1. Man, I'll tell you, I am just so tempted to just bring out specific illustrations, but I won't do it because I know that that's just my flesh. But Christian, when you see things that upset you and frustrate you and you don't understand why the world is the way it is, it is not godly for you to shoot your mouth off with all kinds of frustrating speech. Because that only brings a war. The Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. Proverbs 15, 1. Therefore, godly wisdom and tact must permeate your response. Boldness, demonstrating your confidence in God and his word, prayer and worship are also necessary pursuits that empower the believer to stand regardless of how impossible worldly demands are. I just, I just ask you to please listen carefully. You know this, but I'm reminding you because it's so easy to forget. We live in a time when arrogance, argument, disrespect, and general hostility is the way people deal with unreasonable demands. This may be natural for the pagan, but it is not the way of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23 gives us the example of our Lord. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him, that is the Father, who judges justly. I say to you, let us seek the transformation of heart and life that empowers us to live in the same manner as our Lord Jesus. Truth point number four. Christian, no matter what may come your way, never forget that there is a God in heaven who knows your name, who hears your prayer, and will make every circumstance work for your spiritual good. Hebrews chapter 13, the last part of verse 5 and verse 6, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So, 
we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. What we find here in this lesson today is that Daniel possessed an uncommon composure in the face of unreasonable demands. He had this uncommon composure because he knew and followed and worshipped the true and living God, Yahweh. This is the same God that sent his son into the world to become a man, to live in perfect, sinless, uh, perfect, sinless life, to bear our sins unto death on the cross, to rise from the dead, to bring forgiveness and eternal life, to make that possible for all who will repent of sin and by faith trust in the person and saving work of Jesus Christ. I ask all of you in the room today and those of you who are watching online, where do you stand on that issue? Have you turned from sin and self to embrace Jesus as your Savior and Lord? He is the only one with the power to forgive your sin and to give you right standing with God. And I would say to you that if you have questions about that, I would welcome the opportunity to address those questions. My contact information is there on the screen. If you'll reach out, I'll reach back, and we'll go to the Word of God to find the answers. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your Word, for its instruction, for its examples, for the way that it gives us both the how not to live as well as the way to live. Lord, may we who know you be serious about receiving that information and then trusting your spirit who indwells us to empower us to be transformed, to be able to walk in that light. Lord, you know better than anyone that this world does not need more frustrated people screaming at the top of their lungs about what they don't like. This world needs the body of Christ who can stand boldly, yes, confidently, yes, but humbly upon your word. This world needs a body of people who are not ashamed to stand regardless of the circumstance and to give you the credit and to point them to you for the answers to their needs. May we, the Mission Church, be just such a body of people in this community. Lord, help us to be agents for change. And whether or not we see the results that we want to see, may we put that in your hand because you are the one who is sovereign over that. May we just be faithful to pray, to confess, to yield, and to represent you in a way that truly brings you glory and benefits those around us. Lord, if there's an issue we need to deal with, help us to do that and to begin to move in a new direction. And for those who are not yet born again, help them come to see the need that they have for Christ. And come in faith and repentance, receiving your love, your mercy, and your grace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is On Mission. 
The Mission Church is located at 12001 Ridgemont Drive in Urbandale. To learn more about our ministry, visit our website at themissiondsm.org or call us at 515-255-2122. We gather for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. We would be honored for you to join us. Have a blessed day, and thank you for listening to On Mission.